Martini Theatre on the Air is proud to present the man who would be Sherlock Holmes. Episode 6 rotting plank of wood that acts as the marquee of the blind raven inn flutters and flaps as if it were at sea owing to a strong Yorkshire wind and a fast approaching storm. Inside the eensy-weensy lodgings of said blind raven inn Sherlock Holmes is preparing to go up against that strong Yorkshire wind, while Dr. Watson, 
inspects and cleans his army revolver. I need to look into something myself. I'll be back by supper. I can't say that I approve. I think we should stick... Oh. Just a few moments after leaving in his wake, the incy-wincy lodging, and a very disgruntled retired army man of medical rank, Holmes finds himself in a wearisome tete-a-tete, a meeting of an extra-large mind, to that of a very small one, with the ready-faced innkeeper of said incy-wincy lodgings. You're not looking to actually buy that place, are you? And why not? Well, call me simple if you like, but everyone knows it's haunted. Especially of late. I am not a man of myth or legend. I'm a man of science. Especially of late. The great detective charges full throttle along a muddy pathless pasture upon a shiny black steed, courtesy of the local blacksmith. With the air about him as cold as a company store window display, their breath discharges smoke as if it were cannon fire as they bolt along those lime green fields. North of Keithley. Within our villainous villains hidden hide away, the monster gently lays an unconscious Fanny Lynn Monroe upon a soft, pillowy bed as Moriarty looks on with sheer aberrance. So, is this to be your mate? She is beautiful. Yes, I suppose she is, as far as common back-alley whores are concerned. Your bigotry blinds you. The monster's eyes begin to look almost human. She is not unlike myself. As his grisly hand tenderly strokes the alabaster-like skin upon her dimply cheek.
Inside the public house that rests below the Blind Raven Inn, there is scattered about a few locals and what one might call tourists. Dr. Watson strolls inside and sits himself down at a wee table, where he takes a concerned look at his pocket watch compass just as a delightfully fetching barmaid advances upon him. Can I get you anything, sir? Uh, just a pint. The good doctor takes a brief second out of his busy schedule to have a look at the northern peasant that be delivering the hospitality of her most hospitable torso. That of which is not missed by the ever-leering eye of one John Amish Watson. And a menu while you're at it. I seem to have just found my appetite. That being the case, my lover, I'll just run off and fetch you one more night. Very well, if you must. But let's not make a habit of that running off business, shall we? <laughs> the barmaid jiggles her way back to the kitchen. And Watson's eyes never wander from her department framework. But what he does wonder is how all these farmers come up with daughters like these. The eye weeds and knotted trees blend in nicely with the grey, festering facade of the old manor house, as Holmes pulls his stallion to a heel. He dismounts, and with a certain amount of hesitation, draws himself close to the not-so-inviting doorway. Finding it securely locked, Sherlock Holmes steps back and takes a look at the masonry that lines the frame. He then begins to feel about the brickwork. He finds and then jostles the brick loose before removing it from the wall completely. Inside the hollow nook lay a set of corroding housekeys. A shaft of dwindling light from the opening door shimmers like a bed of floating diamonds as it lays bare the ponderous dust that encircles a multitude of fresh cobwebs and they're not too pleased occupants. Sherlock Holmes walks inside and joins the shadows within. His eyes warily jaunts about as if daggers await him from every dark corner, of which there are many. At the Blind Raven pub, Dr. Watson reads a newspaper and sips on his ebony pine as a large plate of Yorkshire fare is set down in front of his ever-salivating mug. Thank you, my dear. Would you care to join... me? Watson looks up with his ever-so-leering eye and is a bit more than surprised and disappointed to see the innkeeper serving him up his not-so-succulent supper in place of the oh-so-succulent barmaid. Don't mind if I do, sir. You're the gent that came in with the bloke that made his way up to the old home's place, ain't you? The old what? It's haunted, you know. Has been, ever since. The incident, as we like to call it round here.
Sherlock Holmes walks into what was once, upon a time, a children's nursery where several toys, in various states of disrepair, lay about the floor and upon the dishevelled shelves. You see, it were twenty-odd year ago. A small family there were, just the man, the wife and two lads. Holmes reaches onto a bookshelf and lifts from it a dust-ridden violin case. It was the young one that saw it. Barely ten year at the time, I reckon. He opens the case to see the musical instrument that should be inside a violin case. Can't remember the lad's name. Sheridan, I think it were. And painted in gold lettering upon said instrument are the words, To my dearest Sherlock. Right cheeky little bugger, if I do say so myself. Love always, mother. Moments later, Holmes strips away a succession of spider webs that feebly block his entrance to the parlour room. The same room where Moriarty looked upon his open locket with eyes of a surgeon. Over and over a dying patient he was powerless to save. But at the here and now, it is Sherlock Holmes who dons that very same visage. Now, you see the boy's father was in the habit of hunting pheasant every Friday morning. The world's only consultant detective walks toward the sheet hanging upon the wall, all the while clutching onto that violin with a pair of white knuckled vices. Then, on one of them mornings, the boy's uncle, who was apt to visit quite often, a professor of morality, I think it were, coaxes the father to take young Sheridan along with him. He reluctantly releases one hand from said instrument and reaches up to stroke with all the same adoring affection of the mad professor's quivering hand. That sheet upon the wall. Thus leaving this here professor and the boy's mother. With a sudden burst of fury. All alone. Sherlock Holmes rips the sheet from said wall. To expose a portrait of a beautiful young woman. The woman is the same as the one in Moriarty's locket. Garbed in summer pink. With a matching bonnet and parasol. And when left alone, they weren't likely to be discussing current events and the like. She is a vision of some child's motherly splendour. If you know what I mean. Well, the boy, gifted as he was, had suspicions and convinced his father to return early from Hunt. And so he did. The boy were told to wait in the parlour as his father climbed the stairs to the roof of the house. Their favourite hiding place. Thought it'd be safe up there if he did. Not likely. The next thing the boy hears is the screams of his mother, falling from the rooftop to her death, directly in front of him, through the parlour room's master window. The boy then sees his father walk blankly to the bottom of the stairs, wedge both barrels of his shotgun into his mouth, and...
Martini Theatre on the air would like to extend our warmest regards to you, our most sincere listener, for tuning in this evening. We would also like to take this moment to thank the Martini Theatre players whose tireless effort and patience made tonight's broadcast possible. They are as follows. The Dislayed, Victoria Turner, Kerry Lynn Weber, Toby Williams, Michael Northergut, Jim Dana Tall, Timothy James Walsh, Stephen West, D.C. McCauley, Elmer V. Jackson, Robert Romeo Coates, Charles Waterman, and J.D. Booth. Martini Theatre would also like to thank Brian Conwell for his melodious introduction. The Man Who Would Be Sherlock Holmes was written and dramatized by Walter Barclay Campbell based upon the award-winning screenplay of the same name. Until next week, this is M-T-O-T-A signing off.